irrelevancy is a fate worse than death to Donald Trump. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel to talk to us about the ever-changing political landscape, my dear friend, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, a fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. Mike, good morning. You're probably tired of eating breakfast uh, this morning. All the numbers a little bit bloated, maybe. A little number overload, but this is actually the best time of the year for some of us. The, the weeks past the election date are actually some of the most interesting for people like me because we start to get actual numbers on what happened and see who was right, who was wrong, and what it means. That chuckle you hear in the background is Anthony York making his politicology debut. Anthony is currently California Governor Gavin Newsom's senior communications advisor. But before that, he covered he covered California and national politics for more than two decades for the Los Angeles Times and Salon.com. One Take Tony, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. On this week's Roundup, we're going to dive into the results of Tuesday's midterm elections and Democrats vastly exceeding expectations in races across the country. We'll also break down the Democrats' Florida problem and the demographic shifts among voters. Democrats will have to win back in the next election cycle. Then we'll take a look at Republicans' Trump problem and how Trump-endorsed candidates ran behind mainstream Republicans on the same ballot. And then we're going to discuss the looming showdown between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis for the 2024 Republican nomination. There's a ton to get to today. And then when we're done with that, we're going to flip over to Politicology Plus Uh, For our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss what could come next for two of the biggest names and biggest fundraisers in the Democratic Party, Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams, after they've lost again, resoundingly. If you want to pull up a chair and get in on that conversation, you need a Politicology Plus subscription that comes with the private and ad-free version of the show, where we talk about strategy and analysis not available on the public show. There are only two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus, and that gets you a link that you can use to listen in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen to Apple Podcasts, you can navigate to the Politicology show and tap the button that says try free. We'll dig in right after this. All right, before we get into the Democrats' struggle in Florida, in the midterm elections, uh, they were able to avoid a Republican blowout and the looming red wave uh, in this cycle. And while we're recording on Thursday morning, the balance of power in both houses is still yet to be called. Uh, so far, Democrats have picked up one seat in the Senate, but control of the Senate will likely come down to the runoff in Georgia on December 6th. On the House side, there are a lot of races still uncalled, uh, 48 or so uh, last I checked, but so far the Republicans have picked up eight seats. Uh, why don't we just start with initial reactions? How are you both feeling, thinking about the Democrats' performance in this election? Anthony? Uh, I mean, look, I, 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 this is not a time to take a victory lap. I know that maybe the red wave that everyone was anticipating didn't materialize, but I think there's just there's warning signs, certainly for Democrats and for Democrats and Republicans. I mean, look, at the end of the day, Kevin McCarthy is going to be Speaker of the House, not Nancy Pelosi. Um, while it may not be by the margins, people thought that's still a significant, significant change for mm. for Democrats, for California and for the country. Um, 
you know, we may we may yet have Mitch McConnell as as Senate Majority Leader. Uh, so it's certainly not a time for for Democrats to be patting themselves on the back, even though it could have been a lot worse. Um, things aren't great, and I think I think it still is a time for reflection, a time for reckoning, and 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 that that for Democrats and Republicans alike. I mean, the Republicans certainly, I think, were hurt by uh, by the Dobbs decision, uh, and and for the move of of Republican uh, suburban women to the Democratic Party. But Democrats have their own house to take care of and, and keep in order as well. I think sort of uh, uh, an economic message that appeals to the working class. Too many people feel that Democrats are are out of touch, that don't that they don't care about the things that they care about. And I think that, um, you know, as as uh, we're sort of breathing a sigh of relief uh, as Democrats, there's also um, certainly some some uh, looking in the mirror that has to be done at the same time. Mike, what should you agree with that? And and what was your general reaction to what happened? And also, by the way, do you uh, do you think your old buddy Kevin McCarthy is still going to be speaker with the narrow margin? I'm not too sure about Kevin, but we'll get to that in just a second because I think it's a really interesting topic to discuss, especially as the as the margin gets narrower. I mean, look, I think Anthony set this up exactly right. I would add, I think this is a lot more like the Battle of Dunkirk than the Battle of Britain. This was a, this was a narrow escape here, and it needs to be looked that way. This was not a huge victory for the Democrats. They will, of course, make the mistake of 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 taking this as a mandate, and that's not just because they're Democrats. Republicans do the exact same thing. There's always the mistake made by the party that does better than the other party by assuming that they have a mandate for governing as opposed to recognizing it may have just been a rejection of the extremes of the other party. And that's what we're not talking enough about. For all the data points that we've been looking at, the generic ballot, presidential approval ratings, you know, the rolling averages, the one the one data point that we don't really look at that is truly the most telling fundamental is which party is the most extreme. And the Republicans by a plus eight position were viewed as the most extreme party, I think rightfully so. What's unique about that is they have no control over any of the levers of power. They're not in the White House. They don't control the Senate. They're not in the U.S. House. And they still are blaring this the crazy through the through the bullhorn so loud that the American people are going, wait a second, we're not happy with the direction of the country. We don't like where this is going. But my God, like we can't put you in control of this. And in, in some ways – um, I think, I, I think, and again, this is the type of opinion that gets me in a little bit of trouble sometimes here on politicology. Is when we look, when this, by the time this airs in, in, in a couple of days after the election, I think people are going to settle down and go, "Wait a second, n- n- nothing really changed that much here in this election." Like we're going to see a change, probably of maybe a dozen seats total. Um, and we may see one or two Senate seats flip or change, or the balance of power will be Democrats plus one instead of Democrats 50-50. Um, that, that, I'm not going to suggest that's not profound given the headwinds that were, were the Democrats were facing. But in terms of the balance of power, um, this in many ways, yeah, there will be a Republican speaker who that's going to be and we can talk about. But it will be such an incredibly weak speakership. I I don't know that we won't see two or three speakers in the next two years trying to manage that conference. And, yeah, there won't be an ambitious legislative agenda anymore. 
But the truth of the matter is, we're, we're really the voters again. We're telling us they, they want this divided government as evenly, finally split as it is. Um, they're getting what they want, and I think that that the polls were, were far more accurate than not. And and in the in the in the fog of war that is just beginning to lift, I think we're going to look back in a couple of days and go, did did after spending nine billion dollars, did all that much really actually change? Okay, I want to come back to the polls question, certainly, but uh, let's talk about Florida, right? So well, Tuesday turned out to be, um, I think it's fair to say it was a good night for Democrats because they, they held off the good, but, you know, the big way. That doesn't mean that it's, it's a mandate, right? Uh, but there were some bright red danger lights uh, for Democrats in Florida. DeSantis won re-election, uh, defeating Democratic challenger Charlie Crist by the largest margin of any Florida governor in 40 years. Uh, as Republicans made gains all across the state. According to Axios, registered Republican voters in Florida outnumbered Democrats for the first time in the state's history last year, and that lead has been growing ever since then. DeSantis won the formerly solid blue Miami-Dade County, becoming the first Republican candidate to uh, to win, right, candidate for governor, I should say, to win the county since Jeb Bush in t- 2002. Um and Vice President Kamala Harris's former senior advisor and chief spokesperson, Simone Sanders, described the Miami-Dade results as a dereliction of duty for Democrats. Uh, Republicans also swept the Florida cabinet races and won a two-thirds supermajority in both houses in the legislature. And we sort of built the show today around Jen Psaki's tweet that said uh, – Democrats have a Florida problem, but Republicans have a Trump problem, and that's harder to, that's harder to shake. Um, so right now we're, talk, we're talking about the first half of that. Mike, what's going on in Florida um, and, and what's pulling it from the potential battleground lane to the solidly Republican lane that it looks like it's in now? Well, let, let me I want to say this declaratively. I, I've said it, you know, I think pretty clearly before, but without the exclamation point, Florida's not a battleground state. It's not. It, that's kind of a relic of the past. It's like Ohio. Ohio isn't either. These are Republican states. And that's why we made adjustments uh, to the 270 map in 2020 by by focusing more on Georgia and Arizona and poking uh, the bear a little bit in North Carolina. Incidentally, North Carolina, I think, becomes far, far more important in the 270 map in 2024 than anybody is paying attention to. But let's not get into presidential politics quite yet. Right? Let's take a little bit of a breather. Uh, look, what you're seeing is a consolidation of a number of Republican lanes, a, cu- a couple of Republican bases of support. And you're also seeing the hyper-partisanization of the country, right? When you have a, a Texas and a, a Florida balancing out a California and a New York, right, what we're going to start seeing is the parsing of these other states in the 270 map – um, where a lot of the, the Nevadas, Arizonas, Georgias, North Carolinas, Wisconsin's become more important. New Hampshire's become more important. Um, I, 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 there, there was a dramatic overperformance with Hispanic voters. Dramatic, something I've never seen before. Um, Florida is very unique. The Hispanic electorate uh, is is very very different than anywhere else in the country. Like very different. Um, you know, to, to think that Ron DeSantis can take a victory in, in Miami or South Florida and, and transfer that to to Texas, the Rio Grande Valley, or to East Los Angeles is is silly. That's just, just not, it's not it's you know it's, it's not going to happen. 
And, and, and there's a lot of speculation as to which demographics were, were there because of COVID and is it retirees from the Midwest, you know, fleeing and retiring there, this older 65 vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it is. I just, look, I'm a huge believer, as you know, that demographics is destiny. It's just most people don't correctly understand demographic work. And, and, and that's what is happening. That consolidation is happening in Florida. But I, I, I don't think it's a dereliction of duty on the Democratic Party. There's, there's just some fundamentals that the Democrats can't do. It's like saying the Republican Party is going to be competitive in California. That's just not true. And it's not going to happen. They can say it. And they've been saying it for 30 years and it's just not going to happen. Not because they're incompetent, though that may be true. Not because they're out of touch with most Californians, because that's true. There's just some national dynamics that are simply unsurmountable. And Florida, I think we have to recognize, is, is, is not a purple state. It is not a battleground state. It is a Republican state. Put it in the red column and adjust accordingly and, and fight accordingly. All right. So it looks like Anthony's having some technical issues right now. We'll try and get him back for the rest of the show. But Mike, in the meantime, we also saw some significant shifts uh, in support for Democrats on the national scale. So zooming out from Florida. Uh, now, these are CNN's exit polls. Their exits are you know, taken with a grain of salt. But there was a significant shift in voting patterns among Latino voters from 2018 to 2022. In, in 2018, Democrats won Latino voters by 47 points. Uh, that number fell to 33 in 2022. Numbers worse for Latino men. Democrats won Latino men by 28 points in 2018, and that fell by a whole 20 points in 2022 down to an eight-point advantage. And, AP, and AP's vote cast uh, showed that there was a stronger swing towards Republicans among non-white voters than white voters from 2020 from the presidential to 2022. So some of those are uh, for white non-college educated voters were R plus 25. They went up to R plus 31. These are national. White college, D plus seven to R plus two. Hispanic, D plus 28 to D plus 16. Dropped for Democrats. Uh, and and one of the swingiest populations possibly is uh, is is. Black voters, Democrat plus 83 down to Democrat plus 69. Um, what do these shifts, what does this swing tell you about, uh, about non-white voters? It tells us what we've been talking about, what I've been kind of pointing out for a very long time. And, you know, I've talked about it a lot on this show, which is non-white voters make up a disproportionate share of the blue-collar, non-college-educated working class. And we should not be surprised that they are voting with their pocketbooks more than they are through the lens of racial identity or ethnic identity. And it's easy oftentimes for college-educated white people to be like, the primary concern of people of color is the way that they are viewed racially in this country. And for most of us, that's true. That's a very significant part of our lives. But it's not as important as paying rent or feeding your children or saving for college and doing the things that you have to do. That's just baked in as a way of life as an American who is non-white in, uh, in, in this country. And it always has been. A lot of us don't have the luxury, and it truly is a luxury – uh, if you are working class and you're struggling to get by, we don't have the luxury of, of of dealing with those as the most immediate concern in our lives. They're just something you have to deal with. And I think that that's what Democrats are really missing. Look, there's there's more and more data coming in that I think is going to give us some more clarity on this election. But a lot of people are jumping in, as, as both parties do, trying to set the narrative. But it's clear, I was just looking at some numbers in South Texas on this Hispanic vote again, the numbers of Latinos 
are staying where they were in 2020 nationally across the board. There's even an argument that in some of these Hispanic dense precincts, they're getting more Republican. Uh, even like New Mexico, too, for example, which was just picked up by a Democrat by less than a thousand votes, that was a Biden plus five district two years ago, meaning the Democrats won the seat. But it's 5% less Democrat than it was, meaning it's, it's moving to the right, even though a Democrat narrowly picked it up. And we're going to start seeing a lot of that type of data. Um, and so the, the Democratic partisans really, really need to beware, even more than they needed to this last election cycle, of trying to spin this as they're not being a problem. It's, a, it's not only a problem, it's an even bigger problem now. And all of the data, whether you're looking at precinct data, which is the hard numbers, or exit polling data, which is softer but gives us a longer trend line, is showing that this is happening. So you, can, it, you really have to be a, a, a completely blind partisan at this point in time to not acknowledge a problem that is happening. It doesn't mean you have to do anything about it. A lot of Democrats aren't doing anything about it. They, they believe and they showed Tuesday night you can win elections with the shift with white people. That's exactly what Donald Trump did in 2016. Right? Everyone's saying you've got to get people of color, you gotta get people of color. And Trump said, No, we're not. And you know what the Democrats did Tuesday night? No, we're not. We don't need people of color in our coalition. We just need white people. And so they went after white women on abortion, and that's what they've got. Um and, and so that's and that's actually a really good way to look at it, is both parties who are overwhelmingly led by strategists who are white college educated people just have a natural affinity to to look at the math differently and say how do we get around needing more yeah. people of color? How do we get more white people to overperform <laughs> for our voter model? And that's what, what happened in, in election night Tuesday night is exactly what the Republicans did in 2016, which is they're overperforming with as white they're segments. underperforming with non-white segments. And that's the that's 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 as they continue as to they lose continue to lose more white, white people. people. And this is the, the I, I wanted to talk about this on the show because it's one of the themes that isn't getting any airtime in the cable news coverage at all. None of the pundits are really talking about this. Everybody, you know, and it's understandable, like uh, Democrats are all breathing a sigh of relief right now. Over the last 72 hours, they defied expectations, yes. right? That's the main narrative. They defied expectations by actually holding on to the seat. But what we're not looking at under the hood is this demographic shift. It's actually it does not bode well. So the question is, how can they both, you know, celebrate not losing as many seats as they thought they were going to and hunker down and say, we, we defied expectations, but we need to start adding to the coalition again. That's exactly the question that needs to be asked. The question is, will they ask it and will they actually do anything about it? And that's why I said earlier on the show, this is Battle of Dunkirk. You, you escaped to fight another day. That's, that's the way Tuesday night needs to be looked at. It needs to be celebrated because it was a rarity. It was not what conventional wisdom was suggesting. The Democrats did defeat some very significant headwinds. But let's not overplay what it means. This is not a mandate for anything. This is not a pickup. It's not that you're picking up seats. You may pick up one Senate seat. It means you're not losing seats. And that that's not the right way to build a party or build a movement or protect democracy or advance an agenda. In fact, if these numbers are to believed, and I believe them because they're factual, it's precinct data on the ground now. It's not just exit polling data. 
Democrats are losing more non-white voters. Like that's a, that is a central piece of the Democratic coalition. So what probably happened is you were getting white women and white white Republican women and white uh, lower propensity Democratic women and white independent women on Dobbs. You can't run on that forever any more than the Republicans in 2016 could run on just whites wanting to build a wall. It doesn't last that long. You can't build a movement on that. That's not a coalition. It's an angry moment in time. And that's what I think the Democrats need to understand is they were able to capitalize through no effort of their own, by the way, on an angry moment in time with the Dobbs decision. You know, the Supreme Court saved democracy, <laughs> ironically, by, 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 by There are some heads exploding right now. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's the great irony yeah. of what happened. Had the Supreme Court not ruled on Dobbs, it would have been a red wave. I'm convinced of that. Now, look, there were other things. There was the re- refrigerator sure. hum on January 6th that was showing the extreme nature of the, of the, of the Republican Party. Uh, the Uvalde shooting had something to do with this. I think Biden was really smart, even though he was criticized by his own party, to lean into the anti-democracy message twice uh, since Labor Day. I mean, you've never seen an American president do that. I think it was very wise. A lot of people saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, they knew what they were doing. They were seeing those numbers on extremism. That's how they were looking at the negative partisanship about this. And that's what was motivating the right key constituencies. But remember, being against something builds a very very tenuous, unholy alliance. It does not build a lasting coalition. And that's the message I think that needs to come out from 2022 uh, and the, the quest for Democrats. And the question is, will they continue to do what the Republicans did in 2016? which is to use fear, anger, uh, which is, is a good tool sometimes uh, to, to, to scare white people in a certain direction um, and at the expense of losing the multiracial nature of a of the coalition in a country that is rapidly becoming There's a non-white. whole conversation here, a whole thread I want to bookmark for another day about what it even looks like to build a positive coalition in an era dominated by negative partisanship. That's a whole different, Mm -hmm. like that's a whole different equation, right? Truly. So let's come back to that. So on Tuesday night, uh, now getting to the Trump problem, the expected red wave didn't come, right? Republicans will almost definitely retake the House, but with a narrower margin. Uh, The New York Times and NBC are both predicting a 10 to 15 seat margin as of right now. It's Thursday morning. Uh, as opposed to the 30-seat margin we were talking about this time last week. Former George W. Bush speechwriter Mark Thiessen, who, fun fact, his uh, wife was a boss of mine once upon a time when I worked on the Senate, uh, he called the results a, quote, searing indictment of the Republican Party. Here's what he had to say. We have the worst inflation in four decades, the worst collapse in real wages in 40 years, the worst crime wave since the 1990s, the worst border crisis in U.S. history. We have Joe Biden, who is the least popular president since Harry Truman, since presidential polling happened, and there wasn't a red wave. That is a searing indictment of the Republican Party. That is a searing indictment of the message that we have been sending to the voters. They looked at all of that and said, and looked at the Republican alternative and said, no, thanks. 
So when you look at some of the candidates voters said no thanks to, you can start to see the drag that Donald Trump's endorsement had on their elections. When you look at elections where there was a Trump-endorsed slash Trumpy candidate running for one office and a more mainstream Republican running for another, the mainstream Republican ran ahead in, in almost every state. In Georgia, we talked about this on Wednesday with Susan Del Percio and Theron Johnson. Brian Kemp ran ahead of Herschel Walker. Uh, in New Hampshire, Republican Governor Chris Sununu cruised to re-election while Don Bolduc lost to Maggie Hassan by double digits. Um, in in uh, Ohio, Trump endorsed J.D. Vance, won the Senate race against Tim Ryan by six points, while uh, Republican Governor Mike DeWine won re-election by more than 25 points. Uh, so and then there's Pennsylvania, Colorado, the list goes on. Um, Lauren Boebert, right, is down by 64 votes right now in a race that is way too close to call in an R plus seven district. That's that's enormous. What did these results tell you about Trump's sway over the electorate? Uh, and I, I, I think I know what you're going to say, but then the real question is, are the right lessons going to be learned by the party apparatchiks in the postmortem here? Or are they going to double down on what I, you know, what is the best fundraising machine that they've ever had in, in Trumpism? I mean, there's a, there's a lot in there that are really central to where the country uh, is heading politically in the way we practice politics, but also, you know, where the Republican Party is heading. You know, Mitch McConnell himself said it um, perfectly, which is candidate quality matters. It does. And the reason is, and again, I'm going to keep driving this home because it is so important for people to understand. And it really hasn't broken through our consciousness yet because as political people, people who listen to politicology, close observers, there's always this question of like, what do the Democrats stand for? What do the Republicans stand for? As if somehow voters are adjudicating between policy decisions. They are not. That is not the way Cam campaigns work. These swing voters and the differentials you pointed out in very clear HD, you know, hypervision here are telling us that voters are rejecting extremism. They're voting against things. They're not voting for things. And people really need to kind of write that down and read it and breathe it in because it is such a fundamentally different way to look at politics than the way that 90 percent of people look at campaigns. Is And, and Thiessen in, that, in the intro pointed it out exactly right. With all of these bad things happening, the American people said we are willing to put up with all of that. Because the Republican Party it's insane. is it's fucking insane. This short trip to yes. crazy town. It is. And it's why strategically, and look, I'm going to say, again, some controversial things here, as I sometimes do, because that's what I do politically. But you, having Madison Cawthorn, having Marjorie Taylor Greene, having Lauren Boebert in some of these safe Republican seats is actually extremely helpful for Democrats. Okay, in safe Republican seats. Now, Bobert's seat is not as safe as Marjorie Taylor Greene's, but having the crazies define the party is extraordinarily yep. helpful. Yep. <laughs> okay, Man- managing your crazy in your caucus is your job now as the speaker or as the leader. 
That's different than the way politics was 10 years ago and for the past 250 years. But that's what the job is now, is managing the crazy. That's what Nancy Pelosi has had to do, bringing AOC into the fold, bringing the squad and asking them to quiet it down, disavowing the letters on Ukraine, saying maybe we should maybe we should work with Russia, right? Like quietly behind the scenes a week, two weeks before the election. Like the, the crazy needs to be managed. If you can manage your crazy and the other guy can't, your chances of winning have gone up exponentially. And you have to understand how pivotally important that is because an Oz, a Walker, a, a, a Lake, these candidates, even J.D. Vance, even when they win in the Arizonas or Ohios, they're doing incredible damage to the national brand in other places because it defines who you are as a party. That's the story of California, incidentally. It's not that all California Republicans aren't, you know, are, are, are crazy, batshit crazy. Most of them still are, but they're defined by the most extreme elements of the radical right nationally, and that does not play in California. That also goes to the Florida question in reverse. It works for both yeah, parties. It does. Well, you, you, that, that, that's yeah. the way to look at it. Again, the, the, with all the data, all the metrics, all the numbers that we crunch, you hear me talk about all this stuff all the time. You hear all the talking heads and the pundits. Very, very, very rarely do you look for the most basic question. Not even all the polls ask it. Which is the party that you view as the most extreme? If you look at that one metric, it explains all the party changes since 1994. More, everyone just, just assumes, well, the historical trend line says that the party in power loses control. Like we take it as just it's like a law of gravity. And, and, and Tuesday showed that's not true. And the answer is why? And there's a better explanation. And that is for the first time in history, the party out of power was viewed as the most extreme. That's what that explains Tuesday night's elections in a nutshell. But more importantly, it explains the balance of power going back to 1994, which was the first year that the House changed power in 40 years at that time. If you understand politics through that lens, everything else makes sense. Everything else falls this, into you're line. You're not getting this on cable TV. This is not. This is. This is. You're, you're no. getting. You're getting. No, because victory. cable TV is complicit in it. They oh make God, money off of it. <laughs> they, they monetize outrage. That's how they make money is by making people scared and angry. There's money in fear. Yeah. There is a lot of money we, in anger. Ask the we did a whole, Like there's a lot of money in pissing people off. We did a whole plus segment on this. Yeah. And there's no way they're going to walk away yeah. from that. That's why there's no money in objective news. Is if you're just looking to consume objectivity to understand and get educated, it doesn't make you angry, or it doesn't make you. Uh, you know, it might, you know, depending on the news that you're looking at, or it doesn't make you fearful. It might depend on the news, but in an objective way, it's not designed. To, to, to stew you in your own juices and get the veins in your neck popping out pissed off to say, let's go get Antifa or the Muslims or the Mexicans or the, or, 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 you know, the, the, the trans people like uh, grab your torches and your pitchforks, Margaret, let's start marching down main street and, and go to the school board meeting to talk about critical race theory. Like, what are you talking about? This isn't even happening. But but that that's where a fortune has been made by 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 specializing yeah. these messages to these audiences, and it's why half of our country is the, radicalized. The outrage by the way. economy. You need to go listen to that. We'll put a link in the show notes because we did a whole thing on this. Uh, I think we we did one in plus, and then we did another thing 
on the show. We'll put a link to it. This is this. If you don't understand this piece, every a lot more, a lot of the puzzle pieces will start snapping into place once you once you get how the how the economy of this works. Uh, folks, it is a it's election week. So if we feel if we if we sound a little bit uh, <laughs> if we if this is, if this sounds a little bit cathartic for us, it is. Um, I'm like I want to talk about the let's talk about the speakership for a minute, right? Um, the yeah. Because up until now, it has been looking like Kevin McCarthy would have a lock on the speakership. It now doesn't really look like that anymore. But I think we should unpack for people why the Republican Party, why why the House power dynamics might change so dramatically with a narrow margin. Um, uh, because I think we stopped it. We had this conversation off mic, but I think it's I think it's useful for people to understand uh, that control of the House of Representatives. Um, is going to be regardless of who gets, it's going to be very tenuous because of the margin. It's going to be such a such a such a such a close number. So, um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, you, you and I have talked about this a little bit before with uh, talking about Kevin McCarthy, and I said if he doesn't get you know a thirty vote majority or more, he's in trouble. Right? I've, yep. I've said that. He's not going to get a 30 vote majority. So he's in trouble. Kevin, you're in trouble. Yeah. So, <laughs> right? And so he knows that, this, right? He was actually, I what's think. What's that trouble? What, where does the trouble come right? from? Right? Why is he in trouble? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm getting there. Yeah, Long yeah, wind yeah. up, huh? So, so the reason why, <laughs> yeah, it's the Mike Madrid wind up. Takes a little bit, a little, a little bit of time, but the, the pitch is usually pretty good. So you just got to stand <laughs> in there and wait for it. So what, what that means is, uh, the, the reason why a 30-vote margin or bigger is important is because more of those freshmen coming in will be reliant on him specifically as leader that got him there, okay? That's why a leader, when they pick up votes, consolidates his position or her position much better than when they lose. It's very rare to remain the leader when you lose, the one exception to this, very notable, has been Nancy Pelosi, by the way, who has maintained her leadership even despite losing, winning, or losing. Her caucus has always stood behind her. It's truly remarkable what Nancy Pelosi has been able to pull off in her career uh, in leadership, but that's a topic for another day. Kevin McCarthy has a bigger problem. He's not only going to not have that 30-vote margin, he's probably going to have uh, – I know CBS is predicting 10 to 15. I think it's going to be less than 10. Okay, so he's going to have an extremely thin margin, and that's problematic. And here is why: the first is the the Republican caucus, the Republican conference has three discernible branches to it. Before this is new. Okay, the first is the establishment wing. This is the old, you know, leather-soled, blue-chip Chamber of Commerce Republican. It's the fastest shrinking part of the Republican Party and the conference. That's where Kevin McCarthy comes from. He is of he's a creature of the establishment wing. And as a result, he has never been trusted by the second most ascendant wing since 2008, which was the Freedom Caucus. Okay, this is the Tea Party group that popped up and was like, we're, we're here to burn stuff down. We're not here to work and govern conservatively. We're here to, to, to tear stuff down. But what has emerged since 2016 is what I call the QAnon caucus, which is the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gates and the Paul Gozars, right? These people have not only no intention of tearing things down, 
they're not even dealing with the same universe and reality that the rest of us are living in. And it is not a small part of the caucus, by the way. It is big, and it's gotten bigger as these changes have happened, and they've really gone on steroids since Donald Trump's emergence into the Republican Party. Okay? So where John Boehner and Paul Ryan, the last two leaders of the conference, could not hold on very long balancing the establishment wing and the Freedom Caucus wing, and they they couldn't ride that bucking bronco for more than a few years, got tossed off. Kevin McCarthy, we have to remember, Kevin McCarthy was supposed to become the leader after Boehner, but he could not put the votes together, and Paul Ryan became the leader, okay? The problems as to why he was not able to put them together have remained, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is the leader of this third ascendant wing of the GOP conference, does not like Kevin McCarthy, does not want him to become speaker. In fact, after after uh, Kevin McCarthy came out and announced he was going to be throwing in his hat for speaker yesterday, he immediately went into a meeting with Marjorie Taylor Greene for 45 minutes which is basically him going in to bend the knee to saying, what do I need to get you to be a part of this coalition to make me speaker? That is crazy. That is a deal with the devil. That's as bad as going to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring to say, how do I get back into good graces after I spoke the truth? So now if Kevin McCarthy has a less than 10-vote majority, he's going to have to do everything that Marjorie Taylor Greene wants, including – the Hunter Biden investigation, the impeachment of Joe Biden, the impeachment of Merrick Garland, the possible ascendancy of Donald Trump to whatever symbolic or substantive role that the QAnon wing wants Donald Trump in. And remember, Donald Trump knows this. While he has complete control over Kevin McCarthy, there is nobody who is more, has demonstrated more fealty to Donald Trump than Marjorie Taylor Greene. She is his base of support in the in the House Republican caucus. She is. It is not Kevin. It is not Jordan. It is not Scalise. They will all kiss the ring because they have to. But the most loyal, dutiful foot soldier in Trump world in the House conference is Marjorie Taylor Greene. She is going to wield far, far, far more power than people realize in a in a in a in a House controlled by Republicans, regardless of the size of the majority. That's what's going to happen. So anybody who does not do her bidding is not going to be speaker very long. And it's going to be very hard to actually govern, like getting funds to Ukraine or or, or raising the debt limit or preventing government shutdowns, anything. It's going to be extremely difficult to do when she does not give the imprimatur because she's not interested in any of that. She is looking to bring the country to its knees to become more subservient to Trump. So unless you can get five or six Republicans to vote with the Democrats on critical issues facing the country, you're not going to be able to lead the caucus. Oh, and then there's this. If you do do that, if you are able to whip six or seven votes— You're done. You're You're over. You're not going to be speaker after that (laughs) vote. So that's what we're in for in the coming two years. And like I said, the smaller the margin, the shorter the duration and the term of the next speaker. So Kevin, most reports were saying Kevin thought he could get upwards of 60, 60 seats. 
with this coming red wave. Okay, and, and they were posturing like that was going to happen. He then came out later that night and basically said, "We're going to go to bed tonight. It's not going to be as big as we thought it would be, but it's going to be bigger than uh, the speaker, the, the the leadership has right now, bigger than, than Nancy Pelosi's caucus, which was a very very low bar to set, which is basically the Republican majority would be more than five votes." Hey, I, I'm not sure if he was right, but what I will say, if it's not more than ten votes. It's going to be an absolute nightmare, and the country is going to have to deal with it. The the the, the there's good and bad yeah. news in this. Again, sorry yeah. about the long windup. Yeah. Hope no, it's been it's good, good though. The the, the the problem is, it's going to be really torturous for the country from a governing perspective because the spectacle is going to be embarrassing not only for this country but for us internationally and perhaps emboldened our enemies. I believe it could be that bad. But what I will say is this, we are also at the same time will be watching the death throes of the modern Republican Party because that coalition cannot hold together. It is an unholy alliance. And the more it is on display, the greater the likelihood for a complete immolation of the American right where people will finally say, we can't do this anymore. Remember, Donald Trump's not going to stop. He will be in prison saying, keep going forward, and 25% of the Republican base will do whatever he says. All of the other vultures who have been complicit in this will start picking off their factions and their factionalizations. And like I said, this is not your grandfather's Republican Party where there's a battle between conservatives and moderates. There are three discernible ideological wings of the modern Republican Party that have no business being under the same tent together, and they're about to figure that out. Okay, so then let's spend a few minutes talking about Trump versus DeSantis then in 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 the wake of this election because it, DeSantis is resounding yes. victory in Florida, right? And then drag on the Trump endorsed candidates in the rest of the country uh, uh, ha- have reignited the, the chatter about a primary showdown between both of them. So DeSantis managed to go from a twenty point loss in Miami Dade in twenty eighteen. Uh, to an 11 point victory there in 2022. He also had a 20 point swing in Palm Beach County. Uh, he raised $200 million in his reelection campaign, still has about $90 million left in the war chest, according to Axios. Like, didn't even have to spend it all. Uh, the rising stock of uh, DeSantis seems, you know, tr- Trump seems to be worried. Uh, the, the nickname he trotted out, Ron DeSanctimonious, at a rally in Pennsylvania on Saturday, it's, you know, it's not Sleepy Joe or Low Energy Jeb. Um, Tuesday, the Wall Street Journal published a quote from Donald Trump warning that if DeSantis ran for president in 2024, Trump would, quote, tell them things about him that won't be very flattering. Trump went on to say, quote, I know more about him than anybody other than perhaps his wife, who is really running his campaign. Uh, Maggie Haberman at The New York Times uh, says Trump uh, is, quote, frequently in a state of near rage about not being president anymore. Um, also Trump is reportedly livid with Dr. Oz for not winning in Pennsylvania because he saw a red wave retaking Pennsylvania as a good setup for his reelection launch, which remember he promised everybody an announcement coming up, uh, pretty soon, uh, GBD, whether or not that still materializes, but the juicier part, um, of the story really is that Trump's own advisors are now encouraging him to push back his 2024 announcement. Um, the people around him, right, are saying, eh, maybe he shouldn't do this. Uh, I talked to Theron Johnson yesterday, and he was like, you know, one of the most remarkable things Republicans did in Georgia was keeping Trump out of it during this race. And that is actually really remarkable. 
Um, the the advice to push back the announcement mostly came in private, but uh, but Kaylee McEnany, uh, his former White House press secretary, went on Fox News on Wednesday and encouraged him to push back on the announcement. She she was like, uh, every ounce of Republican energy has to go to winning the Georgia runoff, and she discouraged Republicans from you know looking at twenty twenty four right now. She 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 said, does that include Trump? She said, I think he needs to put it on pause. So you know he's hating life right now. Uh, and, and like is thoroughly, thoroughly humiliated. Uh, and so, you know, I I wonder how you think the showing to Tuesday's, you know, elections result in, how does this change the likelihood of a potential primary challenge? We know he's not going to stop being Trump, but, but he is, he is, I think weaker now than he ever has been because he is more irrelevant now than he ever has been. Right. And that's what you said is exactly right. We have to remember something. Irrelevancy to Donald Trump is a fate worse than death. And he will fight with every tooth and nail to prevent being irrelevant. He doesn't have to win. He just has to be relevant. He just has to be a factor. And in fact, if he can demonstrate, and this is where I think we're heading, if he can demonstrate that without loyalty to him, the Republican Party will lose, that's what he's going to do. And that means he will go out and and tell Republicans to stay home and not vote for Herschel Walker, to show the Republican and show the swamp that you matter. Because if it's about you and me not mattering, what they're trying to do, they being the Republican establishment, they are going to do so. So show, the way you show them is to show them who's got the power here, which is don't vote. Okay, I, that that's to me is a is as fantastical as that sounds is far more likely than having him come out and stumping for uh, for Herschel Walker. Totally because remember what Jason Miller, yeah. what Jason Miller and Kathy McEnany are saying is if Trump comes out and campaigns, Herschel Walker will lose. And what Miller also has to say is if Herschel Walker loses and you campaign for him, then you're done. And Trump's going to say, well, you know what? Yeah. There's one way to show that I'm not done, which is you can't do this without me. So I'm going to prove you can't do it without me. And if he does that, he maintains his relevance (laughs) at the top of a dramatically (laughs) collapsing heap. And that is exactly what Donald Trump will do. Okay, to remain yeah. relevant. If he's told to be quiet and sit in Mar-a-Lago and don't get involved, he runs a very real risk of becoming irrelevant. Like I said, and that irrelevancy, because the best thing Ron DeSantis can do right now, by the way, is to be quiet. It's to do nothing. Is let all of the third-party surrogates, which they already are, Fox News, the New York Post, Rupert Murdoch, the American Enterprise Institute, all of the institutions of the Republican right-wing media industrial complex are starting to shoot at Donald Trump. Okay, DeSantis should and is stepping back and saying everybody thought I would win by 12, which would be a blowout. I won by 20. I'm viable. I can win. I'm not going to do anything but go to work as governor and start working on very mundane things and dealing with the governance while all the fireworks are going off around me. And there will be fireworks. Donald Trump has already started lighting them. So Trump has to remain relevant and he will attack DeSantis, but he will attack 
everything. He will he will burn the house down if he feels he is being escorted out. There is no polite way that Donald Trump can be asked to fade off into the sunset. If he does not have that capacity within him. Like I said, irrelevancy is a fate worse than death to Donald Trump. He will go down, burning it down, because he will say, without me, nobody gets anything. None of you guys get to play, and I will prove with my 25, 30, 40 percent, whatever the Republican basis I get, that you can't win without me. He will absolutely do that. Let's just try. He doesn't actually try to literally burn the house down. Well, I, I, again, we've already seen him resorts to, to violence, both directly and indirectly. We saw him lead an insurrection to overthrow the government. If, if he's willing to do that, why would we think he wouldn't tear the Republican Party down? I mean, that's 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 kids. That's, that's just that's playground stuff compared to what he's already tried to do to the entire country. So it may sound fantastical, but that's the next step to this. As Lindsey Graham famously said, if we allow this guy to become the leader of the party, it will ruin us and we will deserve it. And he's absolutely right. This is all predictable. He was telling us the whole time what he was going to do. He is not going to leave quietly into the good night. He will not. He will tear the whole thing down because he'd rather be the captain of the Titanic as it sinks than than actually than try to save it uh, and save the party and save others. He has no. He does not care. He has to be the dominant voice. He has to be the center of attention because his his persona, his malignant narcissism, does not allow for anything less. All right. Well, we lost Anthony, unfortunately. Uh, his hard drive crashed um, and his technology, is, uh, as CJ said, is an open rebellion. So um, sorry we couldn't get him back. Uh, but Mike, before you and I flip over to Politicology Plus, um, you, got any, you got your eye on anything under the radar? Boy, I've been so consumed by numbers, guys. I apologize. I don't have a whole lot that I'm looking at right now. But what I will say is this. The narrative that we have heard and started with on Tuesday night and are starting to see is not going to be the narrative that we're going to be looking at a week from now. So I'm going to caution everybody. Look, it's going to be good for Democrats. I don't mean anything like that. I I feel confident with where things are going in Nevada. I think Cortez Masto is going to pull this thing off. It looks like Hobbs is getting stronger in Arizona with some of these votes dumps. The good news is the election-denying Secretary of State, the Republican there, is losing worse than any of the Republicans statewide. So Arizona Republicans um, have weighed in to do the right thing and are crossing across party lines to vote against the Republican there. These are all good signs. I think that they're going to continue down a good trajectory. What I am interested, though, in understanding is how many women Republicans moved towards the left what happened with independence and then people of color? There's going to be a debate and, 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 and arguments over facts of what really happened on election night and trying to discern the tea leaves. That remains kind of what I'm focused on. I'm sorry it's not the traditional uh, what we're watching, but it is it is just 72 hours post-election. So Dude, I hope you all forgive it? me. I've been so consumed by numbers. This is like my <laughs> moment to like be excited and not sleep for a week and understand everything that's really gone on. Who's right? Who's wrong? What does it mean? Where are we going from a – 
from a data perspective. So appreciate your patience. It's, it's been a blurry week and we're going to have a lot more of that, uh, that, uh, analysis to do in the future, but, uh, okay. Let's, um, flip over to Politicology Plus. We're going to, ha- this is, I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. Um, the, the, what, what happens to Beto now? What happens to Stacey Abrams now after their losses this week? And, uh, we're going to, we're going to get into that. Um, where can everybody find you on the internet, Mike? You know, I have been waiting to say this for a while. You can find me on Mastodon, <laughs> Mike Madrid at C.IM, I think is what my server okay. is. But you can find me on Mastodon. You can still find me on Twitter for the time mm-hmm. being at Madrid underscore Mike. But check me out on Mastodon. We're doing some fun things over there, too, at Mike Madrid. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.